This is transmission one of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System. Today's episode is themed around Neanderthals. In examining Neanderthals, we will consider the nature of human evolution, past, present, and future, examine its complexities, its origins, its depictions in fiction, in science, always science, and build what I call a post-human philosophy. Look at how we are beings in time, a species in time, in constant flux, forever becoming, and where this may be heading. For we are children of Heraclitus, and like that other child of Heraclitus, Nietzsche, we are become ubermensch, which can be translated as post-human. Joining us on today's episode will be Threadbear, at Threadbear, to pronounce the Twitter handle correctly. A.K.A. Adam Flynn. Now, I habitually cut between Twitter handles and human birth names, so you know, set audience. Adam Threadbare Flynn will be providing his own unique commentary on the subject of Neanderthals, and the Norse gods will be in there somewhere. But first, a word from Shiva. Shiva, speak! <coughs> Shiva has spoken. So let's begin. To set the stage of the subject of Neanderthals, we will begin with considering those great mutants in fiction, the X-Men. So first we're going to play an on-topic quote from X-Men First Class, which is itself quoted, replayed within the time-mashing sequel to both franchises or timelines, X-Men Days of Future Past. Here is young Charles Xavier and his adopted sister Raven. I'm sleepy. Will you read to me? Can't. I have my thesis coming up. I have to study. Oh, fine. Read that. Your thesis always sends me right off. To Homo Neanderthalensis, his mutant cousin, Homo sapien, was an aberration. Peaceful cohabitation, if ever it existed, was short-lived. Records show, without exception, that the arrival of the mutated human species in any region was followed by the immediate extinction of their less evolved kin. The more progressive, and I hope the previous quote was based on the state of the science within the fictional timeline that first class was set in. But X-Men 2 has a scene early on in the museum, which I will now play for you. As Storm leads her young, gifted students on a tour of a museum explaining human history and therefore as successors to humanity, their own history. Neanderthals. We once believed that they were wiped out by years of conflict with a much more advanced branch of humanity called Cro-Magnon Man. But recent research into our own DNA suggests that these two species may have interbred, evolving into modern humans. In other words, into what? Us. us. So what these two selected clips allow us to show is a progression within the franchise's timeline in an evolving understanding of the nature of human evolution, the complexity of its origins, and thus the complexity of the origins of its own future humans. So we can begin to see that, of course, the X-Men are a metaphor for human evolution. They are children of the atom. They are children of the 20th century. 
they are the next stage in human evolution. Blah, 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 blah. Mutants, right? Mutants. Mutants as superheroes, each with one new trait or two secondary mutations, etc., etc. Now, we would perhaps consider them as analogs to transhumans, right? I mean, most of them... I mean, within the Marvel Universe, you've got you've got superheroes, you've got mutants, you've got gods, you've got various aliens, you've got a very rich cosmology. Further advancing our consideration of the Neanderthals and their state in human evolution is Ramiz Nam's Nexus books. The Nexus books are a guided tour through the emergence of a technologically enabled post-human species. In the second book, Crux, there is the following scene which enumerates the situation as some people see it today. Where the X-Men demonstrate the worldview of becoming Homo Superior, this scene elaborates the perspective of the incumbent species, the baseline humans. This is the reading from Crux. Mr. President, have you ever heard of the Neanderthal Dilemma? Stockton shook his head. No. It's taught in Ethics of Emerging Technology courses. Martin, Barnes cut in. I hardly think we need to get into... Stockton cut Barnes off with the gesture of his hand again. Go on, Dr. Holtzman. Our ancestors outcompeted Neanderthals. We led to their extinction. Is that it? Holtzman nodded. Yes, Mr. President. Everywhere modern humans went, Neanderthals eventually went extinct. The groups mingled. They even mated. But the modern humans were just smarter, faster, better able to think and communicate and invent things. They made better tools and hunted and gathered more effectively. The Neanderthals couldn't keep up. Stockton nodded. Yes, exactly. And that's what could happen to us. We're the Neanderthals and we need to nip this problem in the bud before we aren't able to keep up. Holtzman reached forward with his hands, almost pleading. Mr. President, if Neanderthals had managed to nip the human problem in the bud, we wouldn't be here. He gestured around him. There wouldn't be a White House, a United States of America. The world would have less art, less science, less of everything we value. All those inventions of culture that the Neanderthals couldn't have achieved, but that our Homo sapiens ancestors could. That's the dilemma, Mr. President. If you were a Neanderthal and could stop humans from coming into being, or stop them from getting a foothold, you might extend the life of your species, but leave the world a poorer place. Stockton was shaking his head now, not unkindly. Dr. Holtzman, that's no dilemma at all. We're here now. My job is to protect the citizens of the United States of America, and there's no way that I'm going to allow a threat to them to develop. No matter what wonderful world you think might come later, after we're extinct. Holtzman hung his head in defeat. The idea of humanity under threat from an emergent species similar to the Neanderthals and humans dilemma is examined in the Warren Ellis Helmed comic New Universal. It deals with a culture in the midst of upgrade due to the presence from without from the superflu of several actors charged with guiding humanity's transition to the next stage in cultural evolution. There is a similar scene to the previous reading in the flashback one-shot issue of the Universal comic. 
in the 1959 issue, which is written by Kieran Gillen, which specifically has panels, frames, scenes with dialogue such as, what do we know? We know the rules of natural selection. When a superior life form enters a system, it'll push the other out. Most likely, they'll predate on us. We have to stop it. So here again, we're touching on themes similar to the time travel issues we examined in episode Infinity with Warven. The idea of trying to halt progress. But in this, by looking at Neanderthals and by looking at human evolution, we consider it not at a cultural level, but at a, at a genetic level, I guess. So, you know, before we're talking about the time stream uh, in terms of human society and human civilization, culture, globe, and fiction. And here we're looking at it more at a base genetic level. And literally, we're talking bloodlines. We're talking killing the future by killing babies, which is exactly what that issue of Universal is about. Now, as I said, that comic is set in 1959, and the idea of, well, I mean, what we're talking about really is man's, humankind's fragility when faced with outside threats, a new species, or extraterrestrials. This is, after all, the cosmic anthropology broadcast system, so we look at all externalities. And in 1960, we have the famous Brookings Institute report, so titled... Proposed studies on the implications of peaceful space activities for human affairs. The glory days of NASA. And in that, to which of course, Margaret Mead, anthropologist, famously contributed, they consider the threat of extraterrestrials. Now again to read from it, another reading, I will now read. The knowledge that life existed in other parts of the universe might lead to a greater unity of men on Earth based on the oneness of man, or on the age-old assumption that any stranger is threatening. Much would depend on what, if anything, was communicated between man and the other beings, since after the discovery there will be years of silence, because even the closest stars are several light years away, an exchange of radio communication would take twice the number of light years separating our sun from theirs. Maths. The fact that such beings existed might become simply one of the facts of life, but probably not calling for action. Whether Earthmen would be inspired to all-out space efforts by such a discovery is a moot question. Anthropological files contain many examples of societies, sure of their place in the universe, which have disintegrated when they had to associate with previously unfamiliar societies, espousing different ideas and different life ways. Others that survived such an experience usually did so by paying the price of changes in values and attitudes and behavior. And if there's one thing we know about society, it is that the status quo must be preserved above all else. We can't go, you know, incorporating the implications of quantum consciousness or science in general. We must slowly absorb it like some Asimov foundationist psychological... Manipulation to the culture is underway. Or we could be brave citizens of the now. And that is to whom I am speaking. So, considering the readings, considering the issues, letting those things set the tone moving forward, what do we know? Well, what we know now, praise science, is that mankind is something of a mongrel, basically. Yes, 
we have telltale factors such as two species of herpes that prey upon us. Now, it's generally one per hominid line, which means that, you know, we got herpes from another species. We also got lice from proto-gorillas, so think about that. So when we think about humankind and, you know, the word mongrel, well, we all know that mongrel dogs are more resilient. Mankind is, in fact, a mutant, a crossbred, a hybrid, a blending of branches constantly refreshing into each other to form a more stable tree of life and potentially giving the opportunity of isolation to go and split into another species. A new hominid line awaits in the off-world colonies. Now the scenario for the Neanderthals is that they were citizens of the European tundra during the Great Long Ice Age. And everything about their society that we now know indicates that they were specifically adapted to that environment. The direct lineage of humanity came upon its cousins, as it were, at the end of the Ice Age. And there was many great floods, which leads us to all sorts of interpretations of various religious texts and things like giants, which I think Threadbare will touch on. What we know is that, and this is true of the bulk of humanity, basically that everyone that isn't sub-Saharan African in origin has a percentage of Neanderthal DNA. Thus, the Neanderthals did not die out. They died off, but they are within us, right? And this is the crucial distinction between extinction and evolution. Sometimes the species dies out, and we talk about the dodo. The dodo no longer exists, right? And we are as certain environmental enthusiasts would like to say within the sixth great mass extinction. However, there is also a vast amount of hybridization going on because all change is flux. So some species die, some live, some evolve, some crossbreed, and it would appear that what we call humanity is the result of not one pure as certain pseudo-scientific political people eugenicists were talking about, would have you believe there is a, a purity. We are, in fact, the product of much interbreeding. And there would be no white people without the Neanderthals, because that is one of the aspects contributed to, gained by the incorporation of Neanderthal DNA. Now, something that is impossible to establish by a genetic analysis is the cultural contribution gained by the hybridization of, let's call it, original mankind and Homo Neanderthals. It's fair to say, though, that they would have made significant adaptations to their cold environment, one of which we know was cooking. What did, when mankind with the glacial barriers melted, went north, spread as it has done many times? The history of the Earth is a history of wave upon wave of hominids leaving Africa and spreading far and wide. And what we're finding with anthropology and archaeology's continued efforts is more and more branches. There's, of course, Homo floris, the so-called hobbits, who were found on a small island in Indonesia. And the Denisovans, however you pronounce that, discovered in 2010 with just a single finger bone in the Altai Mountains of Siberia. Again, another branch of the hominid species. Now, where it gets fascinating is the recent discovery that the Tibetans gained their ability to live at high altitudes from Denisovan DNA. 
long held up as an example of evolution in motion, that they'd made a specific adaptation to their environment within tens of thousands of years to show that the idea that evolution has stopped and cultural evolution is all that is going is just complete rubbish. The change is constant, right? I'll, put, I'll throw a link into that in the show notes. Let's see. Likewise, we have the cultural maladaptation, the so-called paleo diet based on a simple understanding of evolution, thinking that man is a static species, and then picking a moment in the past to idealize and trying to live that way, venerating it, honoring an ancestral way of being above the resultant environmental, cultural, and of course evolutionary changes that have occurred since then. That is the rubbish of the paleo diet. Now, an example of self-genetic engineering that has occurred within the last 10 to 20,000 years is humanity's ability to digest milk of the cow and, I guess, the sheep and the goat. This is self-selection, an adaptation during the period of the adaptation of agriculture. It would seem that previous to agriculture, we weren't going around drinking the milk of the wild bison, etc. But that once we had embraced farming, then it became a food source. And specific genetic changes have occurred to allow us to digest the milk and other species. To further give an example then of the dangers of a shallow understanding of evolution, we have, again, they're the complete opposite of the paleos, but they are the anti-vaxxers who completely misunderstand that man is not just evolving himself and his environment, but is co-evolving with various viruses. And what we have found through examination of the DNA code is the insertion of viruses into our DNA code over time, called lateral gene transfer. So when the anti-vaxxers, similar to the paleo fools, and you know, look, it's fundamentalism that's the problem here, okay? I have respect for the idea of fitness and the idea of controlling one's diet. It's when it is done to the exclusivity of rationality and understanding and wisdom that it becomes dangerous when something is taken stringently above experience and except for wisdom. And the anti-vaxxers are a regressive force. Worse, well, are they worse than the CIA who have caused a polio outbreak trying to get frickin' Osama bin Laden who was their own creation? Blah, 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 human primate politics, the horror of war, the horror of blowback. Yes, this is the nature of human evolution. We are a species constantly in flux, and therefore, to pick one moment and try to lock it down is to completely misunderstand the nature of evolution and our eternal becoming an adaptation to the environment. This is fitness in the evolutionary sense, in the statistical sense, in the mathematical sense fitness constantly selecting which brings us to a new project that google are initiating in their ever-growing quest to understand everything and model all knowledge in all its facets google are building a map of health and in doing so applying their statistical mining techniques and algorithmic prowess and really what they do now is they farm algorithms you know they write them and they unleash them and then they grow them and they tend to them you know it's not the singularity at all we just got low ai things wandering around what google are doing here is building a map of health what this will do will help popularize the notion of evolution as a continuous process health as a measure of fitness within a continuum of factors multiple things and they're just going to mine various data sets and take baselines is in fact called 
the baseline project. Now, with our understanding of evolution and hominid species, we know that various, and what we used to call races, but various specific branches of the tree have different attributes. Local adaptations to environmental conditions, sickle cell anemia in the African population, skin pigmentation from our good friends in Neanderthals in the European population, and so on. So the idea of a baseline it can't be considered a fixed line. It has to be a relative concept, right? We have to acknowledge that fitness is... I mean, you know, we're going back to nature and nurture here, in a way. There isn't just one ideal state. There is many factors coming in. That's interesting. And it gets all the more interesting once you start factoring in change across time. So they already can load in the Human Genome Project, right? But the Max Planck Institute is also trying to map the genetics of the Neanderthals. Now, we also have, and the Max Planck Institute is a great resource for anthropology, they have our good friend, you can see the Iceman, the 5,000-year-old, well-preserved corpse found in the Swiss Alps, from which they have been taking samples, not just of his genetics, but of the contents of his stomach. Now, this lets us see changes in diet and health across time. So the map that Google potentially can create with Project Baseline would inform the paleos, the anti-vaxxers, and the average citizen as to the nature of health across time, human change across time, and just what perhaps we have gained and lost through various species interbreeding. What I think it'll allow Google to do is to, I mean, you know, people are saying insurance, files, what have you. What it's really going to allow them to do is continue their mission as part of the human-machine civilization that is becoming as we transition to the next phase of society. And again, this is, after all, the Anthropocene. So we are adapting to an environment that we have ourselves shaped. So there is a feedback loop in progress, right? And this is the history of the hominid line for the past 10 to 20,000 years. In fact, anthropological research continually seems to reinforce the idea that humanity's progression as a species has been in concert with environmental change, with climate change. And given that tool use no longer delineates our immediate species, it would seem to me a better name for our species would be Homo adaptus, for we adapt. We're not a passive species. We foreknowledge and tool use and a cultural engine to survive in a ever-changing environment rather than a static environment. Rather than a linear environmental adaptation we continually reach higher metaphorically and literally higher states of living and lower states of living. James Cameron, of course, going to the bottom of the ocean as some sort of rich man quest. Well, you know, bring back some cool images. Now, some music. Let's hear some more of that bone flute.
isn't that perfectly atemporal? To further examine human evolution, we're going to look at two genre shows, two speculative fiction shows, one supernatural, one science fiction, or so they seem on the outside. So we're going to start with the notional science fiction show, the reboot of The Tomorrow People. Now on the outside, to the untrained eye, seems like a tale of human evolution. What it does is repeat trope that in a single generation, a new instance of humanity is created, similar to the X-Men, that to the mundane born Homo Nevaeus, the new humanity, the next generation of human evolution. Now this show is, it's like, it's on whatever network, you know, it's very teen sci-fi romances and abs everywhere. Everyone's got powers, mad fight skills, that kind of post-Buffy genre show that there are many instances of now. Now what struck me when I finally decoded the itch in my brain is that this show is about warring species. And, you know, it's not like Universal, really, where you've got, or Crux, where you've got one renegade group or one military group that knows the truth of what's coming. It's really more like werewolves versus vampires. And, you know, the humans are the vampires, they're the ruling class. I mean, it doesn't help that the underclass of new mutants, which is what the X-Men call, by the way, in the Tomorrow People, live underground in little hidey holes, like the werewolves in Underworld, right? That's pretty lame in general, despite having one of my favorite actors, the eponymous character from Charlie Jade, is in there. And I just lost interest, so I can't tell you overall how it relates. But what I'm saying is that it is an example of a science fiction show that is actually supernatural and pseudo-scientifical. Compared to, and this may surprise some people, the excellent third season of American Horror Story, American Horror Story Coven. Yes, Coven. Which is about witches. Which is about witches. It's fun to say. But it is an allegory for species war and the bloody birth of the next generation. By the end of it, spoiler, the witches are triumphant claiming their place in the world, uniting the bloodlines and surging forwards to build, potentially, a new magical future for mankind, for humankind, for womankind, for Wiccankind, for the witches are the new apex predator, the top of the evolutionary tree, and nobody will mess with them. Far better than freaking true blood, which is largely a metaphor for the treatment of minorities, such as X-Men is which is fine. That is important. But the overall larger theme of the progression of mankind and literally the progression, because it is important to distinguish the two words, progression and evolution. Progress is in a way theological. It's moving in an upwards direction. Evolution is, and this is often forgotten, just about adaptation to environmental conditions and fitness. Yes. So when we look at American Horror Story, what we're looking at, I would say, is an allegory for the merger of original humans and Homo Neanderthalus. And the witches are the hybrids, and their powers are the synthesized abilities, the merger, the resultant and concomitant abilities of a new generation of mankind, of the hybrids. For each contributed something, and there was a greater whole. And, as we are here to say, the hybrided update of the hominid line was indeed triumphant and has been as far as the moon. Yes, and maintains the possibility of further adaptation to environmental conditions beyond the cradle, beyond the rift valley, beyond 
the African continent beyond Earth, which is a cool way to look at it. Thus, American Horror Story is science fiction. I just blew your minds. Probably not. Someone who will blow your minds is Threadbear. We're going to cross to Threadbear from the other side of the world, wherever he is. I'm not sure where he is. He is somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere, and he will speak now. A little over three years ago, I joined 23andMe. I thought it would be interesting because I wanted to know about drug effectiveness and disease risks and whether it thought my earwax would be dry or not. They also had information on global ancestry, but it wasn't something I paid a ton of attention to until early 2012, when they launched a small tool calculating Neanderthal ancestry. Curious, I plugged mine in. So the average person of European descent has a genetic inheritance of a little more than 2.5%. Mine was 3.3%. I didn't think that was particularly exceptional until I scrolled down and realized that I was in the 99th percentile, not just among 23andMe's total user base, but among their European users. And all at once, I felt the same rush. That feeling of joining a glorious and select few that I had when standardized test scores in grade school came out, and I learned what exactly a percentile was. 3.3% is not insignificant, by the way. It's roughly equivalent to learning that my great-great-grandfather was Bigfoot. So I was tickled to learn this, to share it, to begin looking at so many things in my life through that lens. It's another part of my toolbox of self-concepts and magical thinking to apply when useful, along with family traditions, the whims of intuition, and my own self-history. So, an example. My bones have always been said to be remarkably solid, to the point that I sink in pools. I was once told by a dedicated observer of the human form that my body shape was utterly unlike the vast majority of people of my height, which is roughly 6 foot 6 or uh, 198 centimeters. I had none of the ectomorphic lanky look about me. Rather, I'm all broad shoulders and long torso like a person of smaller height, scaled up with bad Photoshop. Accordingly, at a certain age in adolescence, I exchanged basketball for American football, which I played all the way through college before transitioning to rugby. Now, I've had injuries, but I've played more than a decade and a half of fairly brutal contact sports at a reasonably high level without breaking a major bone. Perhaps it's luck, but I armor myself with the image of non-human ancestors shaped to hunt mammoths at close range. I also have some particular speculations about rugby and Neanderthal and the prevalence of Denisovan DNA among Pacific Islanders, but we can leave that for another time. It also got me reinvestigating all of the common myths and misconceptions about Neanderthals, which are many, being as they were shaped in an era of scientific racism dedicated to justifying why 19th century white dudes dominated the planet and deserved to do so forever. Neanderthals were not swarthy, senseless brutes without language. In fact, they were probably redheads. They're associated with the first musical instrument, a bone flute made from an animal femur, they are speculated as having drawn the first cave paintings located in Spain. They cared for their injured, buried their dead, and had brains larger than modern humans. 
They are not inferior in any major respect from humans at that time, except perhaps that it's a bit more of a resource-intensive task to grow one compared to a Cro-Magnon baby. Here, of course, we see that kind of dynamic repeated in the difference between one tall hunter-gatherer and four stunted agriculturalists. Natural selection is not concerned with producing the most interesting-looking specimen, and later is not always better. Yet as time went on, I still had to resist this urge to take things entirely the other way, to draw out all of the reasons Neanderthal were superior, because to do so would be to simply invert the old race theories and proclaim Nords of a different kind. And with that caution in mind, I began diving into the wonderfully Fortean world of Neanderthal revisionism. There are a number of different camps. There are the biblical creationists. There are the people who think that Neanderthals were involved with space aliens to create the advanced ancient cultures of Atlantis and Hyperborea. There's this fellow Stan Gooch who wrote a number of books arguing that Neanderthal culture was nocturnal, matriarchal, moon-worshipping, with minds capable of advanced dreaming. That Neanderthals are the core of what we consider the anima in Jung's psychology, the shadow that they are the penumbra of our genetic and social inheritance. And yet, we also have people like Colin Tudge, a respected biologist who's a broadcaster on BBC's Radio 4. Uh, let me read a conclusion from an article he wrote in 2000. The Neanderthals were big people, not tall particularly, but extremely muscular, with big heads, housing enormous brains, prominent brows, and big wide noses. That much we can all agree. But now let's apply a little real biology without the usual prejudice. Their big sloping heads were surely crowned with glorious coiffured manes, blonde or red, conscientiously groomed by their mates and subordinates. The men sported huge gleaming beards reaching down to their massive hairy chests. They wore furs to keep out the cold, but they were decorated too with paint and feathers like all human beings we care about from New Guinea to Times Square. But is there any good reason, apart from a desire to replace prejudice with science, to believe such a picture? Well, here we may appeal to myth again, but this time to the great folk stories that fired the literature and the pagan religions of Northern Europe, for the gods of Germany and Scandinavia, Wotan, Thor, and the rest, are fierce blonde giants of unbelievable strength, watching from afar, appearing out of the mist and fading back into it again. And is this a folk memory of the Neanderthals, who once dominated Europe and disappeared, no one knows how or why, some 30,000 years ago? Folk memories can certainly last that long, for if they are carefully passed on, there is no reason for them ever to die out. Were the Neanderthals in reality a people greater than us? And is this why we've been so anxious to deny them their proper place in human history? Colin Tudge is not the only one. Jared Diamond has his own theories about Neanderthals he elaborates on in The Third Chimpanzee. It's fascinating because it's an area that clearly has a lot of room for guesswork, and you have established respectable thinkers jumping into it with both feet. But back to the gods. I have some speculations of my own to throw on particularly regarding the apparent evidence of interbreeding. What were those rare products like? 
Based on mitochondrial DNA, it seems that they tended to come from parents of Neanderthal fathers and human mothers, or at least those are the ones who have passed down to us. Were they the giants on the earth we hear about in the book of Genesis? When the sons of God begat with the daughters of man and bore the mighty men of old, heroes of renown. Perhaps their minds worked differently. There does seem to be a great deal of focus in Neanderthal literature and speculation as to what their relative differences in cortex and cerebellum size would do. I can't help but wondering whether the stain of violence and extermination is true original sin rests in our hands. Whether I carry the blood of the feared and unwanted and yet desired within me. It's a strange question, far removed from that occasioned by actually documented crimes and rapine that exist in our genetic heritage. The one in 200 humans living today descended from Genghis Khan. But it's a question I'd like to ask. What was it like? Did they form long-term pairings? Were they accepted by their peers? I can't help but wonder if the offspring were relegated to that position customarily held by talented outcasts, that of the shaman. It would be a place where their differences in mind would be honored rather than scrutinized. Perhaps these grudgingly accepted half-breeds were the founders of all that we consider worthy and true in ancient mystical and spiritual traditions. It's a question without an answer. The only thing approaching an answer, I suppose, would be to ask one. Yes, dear friends, I'm talking about the prospect of de-extinction. But not for table stakes like the passenger pigeon or the photo ops of the woolly mammoth, which would really just be a mammoth-looking elephant when we get down to the details of how it would actually work. I'm talking about bringing to life a true-born son or daughter of the Ice Age. It's a project fraught with ethical considerations. Most importantly, we'd be creating a person, but one whose right to personhood would be an issue of debate and study. Do you just hand the child off to a foster family until they're 18, quietly using quantified self technologies, rather speaking quantified other, to gather the digital exhaust of their everyday existence? Do we ask them if we can study them once they're in a position to offer informed consent? What does informed consent even mean in a situation like this? We've already displayed what Russ Cole calls the hubris to yank a soul out of non-existence into this meat and to force a life into this thresher. But, just for argument's sake, let's say we were able to do it, we were able to figure out some way to do it, with a minimum of problematic fuckery. What then? Well, we're confronted with the deep uncanny, the near-human other. And then we get to see how closely we could hew to Kant's groundworks for the metaphysics of morals, which he insisted would be applicable for any being capable of reason. Should be, anyway. In college, I doodled pictures of dolphins wearing space helmets to lock that concept into awareness. But it's a real problem, one we found ourselves thinking about as we contemplate artificial intelligence. Cornerstone really should be, don't exterminate intelligent life, but oh well, we may have done that before we really had the luxury to wander around Königsberg thinking about deontological ethics. But what if, what if they scare us? What if Neanderthals are actually better shaped for the world to come? What if they're smarter than us? What if we bring them back 
and they turn out to be the demigods and frost giants we told stories about cowering in fear and quiet reverence. On a practical note, I can't help but wonder if their skeletons and musculature look a lot better suited to handle the atrophies caused by long-distance space travel. So, science fiction authors, you've gotten all jazzed up about this impossible engine with promises to reduce the solar system to sailing ship distances. What if de-extincted Neanderthals are destined to be its sailors? All this and more seeps through my mind, all the way back to my occipital protuberance, the bump on the back of my skull just above my neck that I have recently discovered is characteristic of Neanderthals. Skeletons are funny things, and as Inspector Bertillon would have you know, they tell the truth more than they lie. Thank you, Threadbear. That was very interesting. So to follow on from what Adam has said, his excellent contribution to our discussion within this time stream. First, I would point to the excellent book by William Irwin Thompson, The Time Falling Bodies Take to Light, which makes a strong case for the conservative power of myth, the fact that what we think of as recent, mythologically speaking, is often in the thousands of years, not hundreds of years. Secondly, the idea about Neanderthals for space travel echoes strongly with the Peter Watts novels Blindsight and Echopraxia, which feature a resurrected hominid species, vampires, though it's vampires, and they are rebooted and re-engineered to be part of the post-human flight club of a sorts, as I like to call it. Temporal insertion per previous protocol. Initiate playback. Breaking news story from Nature magazine on the coevolution and cohabitation, coexistence, cultural exchange of humans and Neanderthals. It's difficult to accurately date human remains and artifacts, but recently, improvements in radiocarbon dating have produced more reliable dates for these events. Let's replay the Neanderthal survival game with help from Tom Hyam and team from the University of Oxford. They dated remains from more than 40 sites across Europe. They showed that the Neanderthals weren't wiped out suddenly. Instead, beginning around 45,000 years ago, their territory grew smaller. But Neanderthals still lived in pockets of southern Europe. Around the same time, the new players entered the game. They produced a greater range of tools, including more sophisticated stone blades and pointed bone awls, possibly used to make clothes. They also carved ivory pendants and used ochre and other pigments. This kind of symbolic behavior is the basis for language, art, and even religion, and archaeologists debate whether Neanderthals possessed these abilities. It's possible that modern-looking humans moved into southern Europe, bringing their tools and artwork with them, and then some Neanderthals simply copied these technologies. Alternatively, Neanderthals may have created these objects on their own, pointing to a capacity for symbolic thought. The new study shows that these two transitional cultures, as they're called, coexisted, making the copying theory more likely, the team says. As the game continued, more Neanderthal populations disappeared. Some scientists have proposed that the last Neanderthal stronghold was in Iberia, but the team found no convincing evidence of this. Their data suggest that Neanderthals survived in several parts of Europe, 
and overlapped with modern-looking humans for several thousand years. Ample time for exchange of ideas and plenty of opportunities for interbreeding. So this late-breaking news story pushes back the extinction of the Neanderthals by several thousand years. What it also does is lend credence to Adam's speculation of the mythological nature of Neanderthal culture and its impact upon emergent human and hybrid civilization that resulted from the intermarriage literally and culturally. Now, in examining this late-breaking story, which got considerable instant news coverage, we can take a diversion and put on our media studies hat and look at the way in which it has been reported. For instance, in The Independent, what was emphasized was cohabitation, that Neanderthals lived alongside humans for centuries, and centuries is given as the timescale that we think upon. In The New Scientist, what was emphasized was extinction. The telling quote being, humans were an invasive species, which, you know, really simplifies the uh, complexity of human origins and the fact that really we're just folding back in the hominid line back then. And further revelations recently, apart from Homo floris, have been the speculated other branch of the hominid tree, red deer, caveman, who was encountered. And in nature itself, what they emphasized was the survival of the Neanderthal species and cultural exchange breeding. And it ends with a far more positive note. I do like the idea that they aren't really extinct and they do live on in us. Yes, because, as we've said earlier, the hominid species continually changes and evolves and progresses. and is more like a gene swarm than a fixed lineage. It is like the time stream, a special stream that is brute forcing the possibility space of a higher intelligence existing within the material world or, you know, mate, kill, feed, repeat. A stereotype that's showing its age, as this sort of knowledge demonstrates that humanity's dark legacy as the extinctor of many species, from megafauna to our hominid cousins, may in fact be grossly exaggerated, that we are perhaps no more than a passenger on the journey that life takes on this planet through time and that much of the case against us is in fact circumstantial. So that's something to think about. So yes, media studies hat off. So, to conclude, to wrap up, to summarise, to give a precise for our thought piece encapsulated within this audio stream that is going into your ears this very second. I say Neanderthal pride. I say, let us claim our heritage. Let us honour our ancestors, and thus in turn be better ancestors ourselves, understanding the complexity of our heritage and the complexity of what we may leave behind. I say, let Neanderthals no longer be a pejorative, and in doing so, take a stand against othering in its various aspects, to love our brutish past, brute though it may not be, to welcome change and, in fact, to anticipate the birth of a successor species in our continual coevolution with technology, and to welcome the alien, because this is, after all, the cosmic anthropology broadcast system. Yes, that's what I say. And let me finish with one further anecdote. My favourite metaphor is to compare the Neanderthals to the humans as the Etruscans are to the Romans. And the Etruscans, who we now know 
came from Lydia and that Herodotus was correct. The Etruscans are considered to be the originators of much of the culture that the Romans took for themselves and became famous for. The Etruscans had no written language that is known currently and are relegated to the footnotes of history. Yet, Western civilization honours the Romans and the Greeks, of course, who are the other people that the Romans borrowed heavily from. And Western culture should be extended back to the Etruscans. And to take another leap to Turkey, which takes us all the way back to Gobekli Tepe, the current outlier of human civilization. Gobekli Tepe, now known as the First Temple, shows a sophisticated culture existing at the end of the last ice age. Definitively, unlike the still much debated age of the Sphinx or the inferred longevity of the South Asian culture of the Indian subcontinent, because we still don't know sure. Those cities have been found underwater, as were revealed during the heavy weather events of the tsunami to its local citizens. We don't know exactly how far back that goes. Yet, it could be speculated quite easily, for that is a temperate zone on the Earth, that while Homo Neanderthalus was existing in its own adaptation to the conditions of the European tundra, and hunting mammoth, and generally being what I would actually consider to be the true noble savage, in a sense, the conditions on the Indian subcontinent and its native culture would have been far more conducive, less of a struggle against the harsh climate, more of an idyllic place. And when the deluge of the end of the Ice Age came and the sea levels rose, it took with it that history. It was washed clean. And as those such as Graham Hancock love to repeat, we are a species with amnesia. Our knowledge of our culture only goes back within the thousands of years. And we are only just building the true long now and considering it within the tens of thousands of years. And slowly at the edge of the fringe culture breaking down human chauvinism we have man was once known as the toolmaker now we know that chimp used tools and other animals and that in fact previous iterations of the hominid line have all used tools slowly we are expanding our notion of ourselves and in doing so gaining wisdom and intelligence and building the ability i believe to be better actors in the future and to bootstrap humanity into a galactic civilization I think that's nice. So let us venerate our ancestors. Let us praise our relative, let's call them uncles, aunties, honoured uncles and aunties, Homo Neanderthalus, diverged from our grandparents, Homo Hardelbergus. Thank you for your contribution. And maybe one day, in some form, someone crazy like George Church will resurrect you, in a sense, as we become the god species. Perhaps like the citizens of the civilization depicted in Prometheus, having members sacrifice themselves to create a new life, or to rebirth it, or to revisit upon us. In fact, I've been contemplating this, and it occurs to me that it could be possible to better engineer the return of the Neanderthal by utilizing our knowledge now of epigenetics, that we could place our would-be hosts, our would-be forebearers of the return of past the internal environment such that the children that they bear would express a maximum percentage of their own Neanderthal heritage. And in this way, a sort of backbreeding can occur. Now, as to what that environment would be, well, it's almost certainly a tundric environment, and that is itself disappearing. Perhaps to accomplish this goal, one might have to go 
beyond the cradle of Earth to an icy moon like Europa or Aquarius, and there participate in true mad science and genius. That's something to think about. That concludes our episode. Now, a montage of wolves and coyotes, our ancestors of the dog, and of, in my continent, the dingo. Goodbye. Transmissions of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System are brought to you by Lisbeth Action Action Stations. Any feedback can be sent to podcast at mikey.com. M1K3Y period C-O-M. Feel free to send audio clips. I may even play them in the next episode. Until then, goodbye.